From Hyde Park United Methodist in Tampa, Florida, this is the Bible Project 2020, a journey to reading the Bible without fear or frustration. I'm your host, Nikki Taylor. In this week's episode, we cover the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. While these appear as two separate books in our Bibles, they were intended to be read together as one long story of the Israelite people returning from exile. I got a new appreciation for this story and what it can teach us today by sitting in on an engaging conversation with our own Jill Krantz and Rachel Wren, a PhD candidate in Hebrew Bible at Emory University. Let's jump into this week's text together. This week, we read about how the Israelites, who had been in exile, began to make their way back to the promised land. Even though their kingdom is in ruins, we see how God works in surprising ways to help His people overcome incredible odds and enormous difficulties to rebuild not only the city of Jerusalem, but also rebuild their lives as the people of God. My name is Jill Krantz. Join me and our guest, Rachel Wren, and our host, Nikki Taylor, as we discuss how the exiled Jews struggle to reestablish their kingdom in a promised land that is now filled with strangers, enemies, and destruction. And join us as we reflect on how this long-ago time of exile somehow seems to mirror what many of our families and friends are struggling with at this very moment— as our country faces a medical emergency that is different from what any of us have ever seen before. Hi, Rachel. Hi, how are you? I'm good. I thought we could get started today talking about how God got things started. The Israelites are in exile. The people from the northern kingdom are scattered and gone. The people from the southern kingdom are off, and Persia is in charge of them now. Uh, and they're going to get sent home. But how did that come about? Where did the idea come from to send them back home? Yeah, that's a great question. And really, that's kind of the uh, perfect framing question for the whole book of Ezra. Uh, because right there in the first verse, it's anytime you're reading the Bible and there's a, a first verse to anything, a chapter or a book, that's going to like set up the whole thing for you. So right away, it says in the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, in order that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished, the Lord stirred up the spirit of King Cyrus. So here in the Bible, we have this claim that King Cyrus may have issued a royal edict, but it was God who was behind it and underneath it and moving through it all. And this is brand new in the Bible. Very rarely before do we have any mention of God working through another royal figure in such a kind of intimate way, at least a foreign royal figure in such an intimate way. So so this is a big claim that God is doing something new here to to work with God's people in a, in a new way. At the time that he does this, it doesn't involve Ezra. So if we can kind of continue this thought about how God puts the idea into people's head or stirs up their spirit, uh, when Ezra decides to go 
his inspiration seems to come from his commitment. He made a commitment to God that he was going to study the scripture, that he was going to do what God commanded, and he was going to teach other people to do that. And that seems to be the method by which God was able to speak to him and inspire him to get a group of people together and go. Yeah, that's another new thing in Ezra that's that's different than the rest of the Hebrew Bible or the rest of the Old Testament is this focus on the book. Um, in other places, like in Deuteronomy, things talk about the book of Moses. But here, there's all of a sudden this understanding that it's not only important to know God's word and to know God's scriptures, but that somehow God moves through the words that are printed on the page. And this is a new, this is a new way for people to access God or for people to think that God is moving in their lives. Beforehand, it was through the prophets. It was through divination. It was through acts of theophanies, which is, uh, you know, kind of a fancy academic word for when God shows up in a big way. Thank you um, for and, explaining that word. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. That's always the trouble is is you forget. It's like speaking in different language, academies, and you forget that not everybody speaks that language, too. Um but yeah, but here, this is one of the first times that we have God actually showing up in a printed word, which is something that we can really relate to in our lives, but it's new for the Hebrew scriptures. And I like the way that it words it. It's in the book of Ezra, where it says, Ezra had set his heart to study the law of God. So it wasn't it's, it's sort of similar to what our church is doing here this year, where we're reading, we have set our hearts and our minds to read through the whole Bible in the year. Yeah, the the Hebrew there is nice too because it's ki ezra hekin levavo, and that's not going to make any sense if you don't speak Hebrew. But actually, what's fun good. Of, yes, I did yeah. not understand that. Good, good. But what's fun about that is it's like um, Ezra. The hekin is like establishing your heart or grounding your heart. It's it's something that's very firm and very concrete. Um, it's asked for a lot in the Psalms. The psalmist constantly asks God to establish or to ground his heart. And in Hebrew, um, heart was both the emotional center and the intellectual center. So it's all of him. It's not just his heart. It's not just his mind. It's it's all of him that he's establishing, that he's firming, grounding in the world word of God. Okay. And then later in the scripture that we read during this past week, or this coming week, depending on when you listen to the podcast, Nehemiah is going to lead a group of people back to the promised land. And he got started uh, under a different king, but his journey came about when it said that he had heard how bad conditions were in Jerusalem, and it made him very sad. And he was the king's cupbearer, and the king noticed how sad he was and asked him why he was feeling so sad. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of a really beautiful moment of, um, again, like the beginning of the book of Ezra, God working in ways that 
we wouldn't expect or through means that we wouldn't expect. You know, you wouldn't expect that a person looking sad in front of a foreign king would prompt another return to Jerusalem. It's such a small thing. And yet God uses it in this moment with this unexpected person, this foreign king who Mm -hmm. were the enemies for the rest of the Bible. The, The foreign kings were bad. And here God uses that moment again to spur on God's people. Okay, so let's talk now about them going back. So there were several waves of people that went back to Jerusalem, and they went back because they wanted to rebuild Jerusalem, but it wasn't just rebuilding actual buildings. They also wanted to reestablish the kingdom of God as they saw it. They saw themselves as the promised people, and they want to reestablish their religious practices also. So let's talk for just a minute about how things went when they got back there. So the first time that the Israelites came to the promised land with Joshua, the people that already lived in the promised land and thought it was their land were not too happy to have the Israelites moving in. So how did these people feel that are living in the promised land now when Ezra, Nehemiah, and all these people come back and start rebuilding Jerusalem? Yeah, it's such a good question, and it's such a complicated one, Um, because the first way to answer that question is to ask, who were they? Who were the people who were living in the land at that point? Because there's two options. One option is they were foreigners. They were people who had moved in after the Babylonians had come in and exiled Uh, The second option is that in Jeremiah, we hear that when the Babylonians exiled people, they left the poor. I was going to say, I thought some of the Israelites were left behind. Yeah, and some so of them were. Did the ones, did the exiles coming back think that they were somehow better than these people that had been left behind? Uh Yes, <laughs> to put it to put it shortly, yeah, they did. Or at least they thought they were better than whoever was there now. So it could have been just the people who'd been left behind. It could have been foreigners who had moved in. It could have been a mix of the two. And one of the things we learn from the Bible is when that the word of or the people of God and foreigners start to mix, the worship of God starts to bleed onto foreign deities. And so there's a number of possibilities. The Bible doesn't tell us which of those possibilities it actually was, but what it suggests is that whoever was there was opposed to the rebuilding of the temple, of the place where God was supposed to live and where God was supposed to be worshipped. So that suggests that there was something not exactly right about whatever God worship was going on while they were gone. And so they tried to stop the reconstruction, correct? They did. It's such a great story, too. Ezra 4, 5, and 6 are great, and they're really, really funny if you have the chance to read them or if you've read them already. Uh, because so it's, they, They're called the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin. It says they discouraged the people. And there's, there's this really beautiful Hebrew idiom. It says that they slackened their hands. Hands in the, the Hebrew mentality were the symbol of everything. Because you're thinking about an agrarian society. You're thinking about anything that you're done, anything that you're doing is done by your hands. Whether you're working, whether you are taking care of a baby, whether you are loving your family, whether you're building a palace, it is done with these, with your hands. And so if those hands are slackened, it's like this idea of being made 
powerless. It's kind of the ultimate symbol of mean, being made powerless. And this is what the people of the land are said to do to the returnees. So they discourage them is another way we could say it. They discourage them. Uh, in Ezra 5, then, the people are encouraged by the prophets to start building again. But again, the people of the land discourage them. And this time they actually send a letter to the foreign king who's ruling over Jerusalem. They're back in Jerusalem, but they don't have their own monarchy. So they send a letter to the Persian king, not King Cyrus. He's gone. This is a new king, King Darius. And they're spreading lies about the community. They're saying that this community only wants to rebuild up so that they can rebel against the Persian community. Okay, so they're and sending fake news back to they're Persia. They're sending fake, the ultimate fake news. Okay. Absolutely. And the king's response is so great because he orders his scribes to go back in the archives. They find the original royal order from Cyrus that ordered the Jerusalem temple to be rebuilt. Like they were doing this legitimately. They were lying. So the king, King Darius, sends back a response. And it's Ezra 6, verses 6 through 9. And it's so great. He says, now you... Tatanai, governor of the province beyond the river, which just sounds like this fantastical place, doesn't it? It's like a, it's like a fantasy land. And Tatanai, what a great villain name. Tatanai, governor of the province of beyond the river, keep away. I mean, it's just this short curse Hebrew, keep away. In verse 7, let this work on the house of God alone. Let them rebuild it on its site. And then in verse 8, he says, Moreover, I make a decree that you shall pay for it. Whatever in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province beyond the river, you shall now pay for this work to be done. And then this last little bit in verse 9, it's just beautiful. It says, Whatever is needed, and he lists a whole bunch of things, rams, bulls, sheep, wheat, sign, uh, wheat salt, wine, oil, let that be given to them day by day without fail. I mean, it's this just beautiful image of God's providence that happens day by day consistently. I like that part. I particularly like the part where he, Darius calls them on the fake news and then makes it even worse by telling them they have to pay for the very building project that they were trying to stop. Oh my gosh, it's fabulous, isn't it? Just picture yourself at work and like the coworker that sends the emails that don't tell the exact truth about you, your boss not only calling them on it, but then giving them some extra work to lighten your load a little bit. It's just fantastic. So they eventually overcome with this extra added cash and, and supplies, these work stoppages and all the different difficulties and the temple gets dedicated and they celebrate Passover and everyone's probably feeling good about themselves. All of this happens, um, at least the the Passover and the dedicating the temple site before Ezra gets back. And then he arrives on the scene. And because he has dedicated his heart to learning the word of God, he has some concerns about returning to re the people rededicating themselves to God and being God's holy people set apart from the nations around them. Do you want to talk to us a few minutes about that? Why was he so upset? And how can being faithful to God in this new environment be a little complicated? Yeah, it's a great question. And uh, and really, it's a theme that we see woven throughout the whole book of Ezra. Um, way back in chapter 3, they're at kind of one of the, the high points of the story. They are establishing the temple. They're rebuilding the foundation. And so 
the chapter describes this whole process and this whole ceremony that goes with putting this together. And right at the highest point of the celebration, when the people are shouting out and quoting with Psalms, it says in in chapter 3, verse 12, but many of the priests and Levites and heads of families, old people who had seen the first house on its foundations, wept with a loud voice Mm -hmm. when they saw this temple though many shouted for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. I mean, it's just this beautiful image of those moments in our lives when joy and sorrow, you can't even tear them apart from each other because they're so intertwined because this is new and we loved what was old. And we, I never was quite sure with the weeping whether they were weeping for joy or whether they were weeping because it didn't look like the the glorious temple that Solomon had built. I don't even think it was that they were weeping for the glory. I think they were leap, weeping for the grief and the trauma they had undergone. I mean, if you, you know, you picture our churches right now, I'm currently in our church building because it's empty. And every time I walk in this church building, I want to cry because it should be full. It should be ringing with sounds of laughter and of children and of people connecting in God's house. And instead it's not. And then you imagine not only that not happening, but this being rubble, this being not even a stone that we could build on. And then starting to rebuild again, imagine how complicated that process would be. So go ahead. I was just going to say, I think that is something about this reading that might have been more difficult for us to understand three months ago or four months ago. But now I think it's very easy for a lot of us to understand what it might have felt like to lose your lifestyle completely to become exiles, because many of us now are exiled in our own home, but away from people that we know and love and our friends, and trying to keep our traditions and our faith alive until we can once more meet back again and reestablish things. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, I think I think it's just uh, it's amazing how timely the word of God can be uh, for situations that we don't expect. Well, Rachel, before we bring this discussion to a close, we should probably talk about Ezra's reaction when he came to Jerusalem and found that many of the returning exiles had married foreign wives. His extreme reaction is hard for many people to understand. So in understanding the entirety of the Hebrew scriptures, 150 years before this trauma, there was another trauma. Their northern kingdom, which if you can imagine the United States in the Civil War that the north lost and the south won and we split into two countries. That's the equivalent of what we're talking about here. The northern kingdom was taken over and was destroyed like decimated. And this was because a couple of reasons, one of which was that the rich were taking advantage of the poor. They were taking advantage of the fact that people couldn't pay high interest rates and that once they couldn't pay those high interest rates, you could enslave people. You could enslave anybody that you wanted to so that they would work off their debt, big air quotes, which Mm -hmm. meant they would be enslaved for their entire lives. So that was one big thing that was making God really mad. 
Another big thing that was making God really mad is that they were doing this in pursuit of either worshiping God or of worshiping other deities. So it was this social injustice mixed with this terrible disregard and rejection of God that led to the northern kingdom just being destroyed. And the Assyrians were not nice people. When they got you as a political prisoner, they would take a hook and they would put that hook through your jaw, link it to a chain and parade you through the city, at least if you were one of their great high and noble prisoners. Yes. Thank thank you, Rachel, for reminding us of that picture (laughs) on what happened to the northern kingdom. Yes. So so that is communal trauma that lived in the memory of the southern kingdom for 150 years. Then you compound that trauma. That trauma was compounded by the southern kingdom's own destruction by Babylon. And this one was perhaps even worse than Assyria because they were sieged for 18 months. They were besieged for 18 months, which means they ran out of food. They ran out of um proper hygiene situations. Uh, in one point in the Bible, it says a widow was was um, figuring out which of her sons to eat first. I mean, communal trauma. You know, if you think about where we are now and how anxious it feels, imagine not just being besieged by a virus, but being besieged by an entire army. And you're a little city, and the only thing you have to protect you are some brick walls. So there's that communal trauma. Then there's the communal trauma of the exile, which we've talked about already, coming back together. So over and over and over again, this community has been hit when it falls away from God, when it stops worshiping God or treating each other in the way it should. So by this point in time, after the exile, after they've returned, they are desperate to avoid those scenarios again. Those traumas of their past communities live on in their bodies. Trauma theory is very clearly about that, that trauma can be passed down from generation to generation. So that trauma lives in their bodies. And so what they are trying their hardest to do now is to avoid that. They are trying, they are desperate to survive Does that that sound familiar at all right now? Okay. In our grocery stores, what are we seeing people do who are desperate to survive? They're hoarding toilet paper, Rachel. (laughs) They are hoarding everything they can get their hands on. And what does that mean for the people who are vulnerable in our society? They have less. They do not now have access to the things that perhaps they need to survive. This is the unintended consequences of people who are desperate to survive. Go back to Ezra and Nehemiah. They are desperate to survive, desperate to avoid the past trauma. And one of the ways they see that happening is mixing the deity's worship. And how does that happen? Through the mixing of marriages. So Ezra comes back and Ezra comes back and sees that there have been begun work in reestablishing things in Jerusalem, but also sees that they're not following God's laws. And so in his mind, he sees that things are just going to happen the same as they did in the past. Yes, exactly. And all this of that, may be their last chance, you know? All that, of, yeah. Okay. Yep. Yep. All of that trauma is triggered all over again. Now, the NRSV does a bad job of translating um, the last verse of the book of Ezra. It says, all these men had married foreign women and they sent them away with their children. That's a bad translation because it's actually a translation of an Aramaic text. It's not the original Hebrew or even the original Greek translation of the original Hebrew. That one just says they had children with them. 
It's not clear what ends up happening to the women and children. What's clear is that their presence provokes this giant anxiety in the entire community that they have to deal with in some way. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah deal with it by trying to keep their communities as pure as possible. The book of Ruth comes about in a different way. The book of Ruth says, look, foreign women are our ancestors, gave birth to our greatest king. And what's so beautiful about that story for us as Christians is that who comes from the line and descendants of David? Jesus. So in the Bible, you have these two theologies, these two very messy, very complicated ways of staying faithful to God held together. Neither is denied. They both hold intention and argue with each other in the scriptures themselves. So that brings us back to your whole point, Jill, about nudges, about listening for God's nudges in our lives, because that's what we can do. That's all we can do to try to know how we can best respond faithfully in a situation. And just take the first step. And then God will give us the inspiration for the next step. Yeah, and some, sometimes he'll he'll give us the inspiration whether we take that first step or not. <laughs> so, <laughs> I was I was listening to something completely unrelated to this, and it was an interview with a lady whose business in New York City had been closed down, and she wasn't sure what she was going to do next. And it reminded me though of this idea of t- listening for the nudge from God and taking the first step because she said that you need to take a first step, but sometimes you just feel like you can't. So you just Mm. pick up your foot, say, okay, I can't Mm. take a step, but at least I'm going to pick up my foot. And then she said, and if you feel like you can't pick up your foot, just wiggle your toes. Oh, that's beautiful. I love that. I love that. It, so I've got kids age five and seven. So if anyone here has seen Frozen 2, um, Anna has this great song that's called The Next Right Thing. When you don't know what to do, you just do the next right thing. And then from there, you do the next right thing. So when all of it seems overwhelming and out of control, what do you do? You wiggle your toes. You just do the next right thing. So there you have it. While Ezra and Nehemiah details a story that happened a long time ago, it can still speak to us in new and surprising ways today as we are tackling this global health crisis together. I love how Rachel and Jill were able to work together to translate the lessons from this ancient text into how they can apply it to their own lives today. In the end, that's the goal of biblical interpretation to find out what lesson was communicated to the original audience and how we can translate and apply that same message to our own lives today. We'll continue to work on translating and applying biblical texts as we continue through the Bible Project 2020 together. Join us in the journey by joining our Facebook group or by joining an online small group at BibleProject2020.com. Share our podcast with a friend and be sure to rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Jill Krantz produced this episode. I'm your host, Nikki Taylor. See you next week.